Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Sourcebooks. We got to interview Stuart Turton, whose book, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, is out now. But we also have some other wonderful Sourcebooks titles you should also check out. The first book is Bellwether by Susanna Kersley. Part history, part romance, and all kinds of magic. Author Susanna Kersley's latest masterpiece will draw you in and never let you go, even long after you've closed the last page. I had a chance to read this one earlier in the year, and it is spectacular. It um, it reminds me of Outlander in the sense that it kind of like travels back and forth between timelines and actually speaking of Outlander Diana Cabalan gave it a book blurb which is ridiculous so highly recommend this one I really hope you guys will check it out it's so good Sold on a Monday by Christina McMorris. Inspired by a newspaper photo that stunned readers throughout the country during the Depression, Sold on a Monday is a powerful novel of ambition, redemption, love, and family. This is on my TBR list. They sent us copies of this. I haven't had a chance to uh, read it yet, but there's literally a, a piece of history. There's There was a sign that said, two children for sale, and that's it was a picture that was taken and put in newspapers, and this, that's where the story spurned from. So very, very excited about this one as well. And finally, we have The Fallen Architect by Charles Belfour. In this riveting novel from the New York Times bestselling author of The Paris Architect, a man in disgrace finds a digging up the past is the only road he can take. I mean, it's historical fiction, and it is so up our alley. I'm so, so excited for this one. Um, those are three spectacular books. And again, we're going to talk much more in depth about the seven and a half deaths of even a hardcastle in just one moment. But we do want to thank our friends at Sourcebooks for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to check out those titles and all of their wonderful titles that are coming up in the uh, upcoming months here. And welcome to episode 285 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. Hello. How's it going? Good. There's snow, so not great. <laughs> yeah. I saw in AccuWeather. Sorry, guys. You, everyone knows this is the time of year where Jill and I just give you a Cleveland weather update every episode. Um, I saw at the day we're recording, which is Thursday, my AccuWeather app just said ice for at least the next 120 minutes. Like, <laughs> what a gross update. So there is snow. Um, also, I'm snoozy because I got to see Les Mis last night, which you're going to see. On Sunday. On Sunday. It's one of my favorite musicals of all time. It's so good. And the traveling cast that they have that's here in uh, Cleveland right now is awesome. They're, they were so, so wonderful. Although I joked with you before we started recording, it could have just, like, Les Mis could just be two and a half hours of uh, Master of the House and I'd be... <laughs> I'd be content. God, that's the best song. It's so good. It's so good. I almost feel bad for everyone else because like it just it gets such like a bluebird applause. It's su- it gets a standing ovation every single time, and yeah. everyone like I wonder what everyone else feels like when they when that happens. <laughs> but um, it's like when I, we saw uh, the 
curious incident of the dog in the night, I think is what that's called. And there is a dog that came out and got a round of applause just for being a dog. Sometimes I feel bad about that kind of stuff. Oh, I think that happened with The Wizard of Oz. I think they had a real dog for Toto. <laughs> and I feel like that happened as well. I'm sure it did. It's, it's It happens all the time. but Yeah, there was a real dog because I spent the entire time watching. It was a little distracting because you can tell when they're like the little dog biscuits when uh-huh. they're trying to get oh the dog gosh. to do what they needed to do. Oh, the one on on TV. The live one, you mean? No, on when Wizard of Oz came to Cleveland a couple years ago. Oh, okay. There was a live dog and the little girl, yeah. like Dorothy, she carried uh-huh. dog biscuits with her because she needed them to get the dog to do what it needed to do. So you know how NBC does those yes. live versions of So they did The Wiz um, a few years ago and same thing, like it, there was supposed to, there's a dog in The Wiz because it's Wizard of Oz. And it just stopped showing up after the second song. And everyone on Twitter was like, but really, where's that dog? And they, like, released stuff, like, after. Like, yeah, the pup wasn't cooperating. He was, it was he had a little stage fright. Yeah. It just stopped showing up, which I thought was that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah. So that's apropos of <laughs> nothing. Um, so today's episode is an interview that we did with Stuart Turton, who is the author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Again, we want to thank our friends at Sourcebooks for sponsoring this episode. Um, but man, this conversation was fun. We had a blast. This was so much fun. I, he started, he is British. That will become evident. Yes, very. Very quickly. And he said to us before he started recording, he's like, let me know if I need to slow down. Sometimes my accent gets a bit thick. And some of his answers, like in the Nerd 9, were the most British answers. They're so British. They're so funny. It was great. It was um, really funny. But like so... that dry British humor. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're like, for a moment, we're both like, oh, that's a joke. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, his book is in, we, I'm not going to go into it in depth, but it's, if you're a fan of Agatha Christie, if you're a fan of Quantum Leap, if you're a fan of Groundhog Day, you'll love this book. It makes more sense when he describes what the novel's all about. Um Oh, it's so good. So, so good. I, you guys, if you haven't read it yet, you have to read this book. And for our British listeners who are listening to this episode, in um, Europe, it's actually known as the Seven Deaths of Evil and Hardcastle. And we actually talk about why, and it was a really interesting answer, which made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But it I was, was, yeah. We took a shot, because we, we didn't tell him ahead of time we were going to ask him that. And I just I was assuming his answer was going to be like, because they wanted to change it. But it was super it, interesting. Yeah, it made perfect sense. Yeah. Also, I don't know why I told you guys that, because if it wasn't interesting, we would have edited it out and you wouldn't have heard any of this. So, Adam, what's my problem? Um, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com, and there we have all of our social links. We are on Twitter and Instagram, at ProBookNerds, and you can join our vibrant community from there, too. I almost gave my personal, like, Twitter. You can. Or they'd be like, no, no. <laughs> Not my personal social. I mean, I mean, you could find me, but uh, well, you could find us very easily because on our Twitter, we literally put links to our personal Twitters. Oh God, um, um, we and should then... take those off because we both like we'll talk about stuff on our own Twitters. It's just like super not really appropriate. Whatever. Um, I mean, at this point, people know who we are. We're good. Yeah, uh, and you can also email us directly at professionalbooknerds at overdrive dot com. We're like halfway through our thirty day book challenge. Well, let me rephrase. We are halfway through the yes. 30 day the book royal, challenge. Yeah, not the royal we. Just right. Jill and Adam and I, and many of you who started around the same time. Um, so, if you don't know what that is, you can find information on our Twitter, on our Instagram, on our website. You can start it whenever you want. We just happen to start it on November 1st. Um, and yeah, so go ahead and do that. Let us know if, what kind of books. I love seeing everybody's responses and the books. 
Yeah, I mean, we have a fair amount of followers on Twitter, but not to the point where, like, we have floods of uh, notifications every day, except for this. It's so fun waking up in the morning and going into, our like, our Twitter, like, first thing in the morning and having, like, 22 notifications. I'm like, oh, this is going to be people tagging yep. us. Um, and just so you guys know, we're not going to give any information yet, but because of the really good and incredible reaction to the 30-day book challenge, good job, Jill, uh, we've got some really cool stuff cooking up for 2019 that we're excited to tell you about. And um, as well as that, speaking of 2019, go check out our last episode where we talked about our 2018 resolutions and some ideas if you're starting to think about what you want to do for your book challenge for next year. Yep. We got this is a packed intro. It is a packed intro. Awesome. Um, okay. Anything else you think people should know about? I don't think so. Cool. All right. Well, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this interview. So I hope you enjoy our chat with Stuart Turton as much as we did on Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Adam and Jill again. And today we're joined by debut novelist Stuart Turton, whose debut novel, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, has been on countless bestseller lists all year long, and rightfully so because it's wonderful. Uh, we're going to go diving into the, his book, his writing process, a whole bunch of Agatha Christie, I can only assume, and then all sorts of other good stuff. But first off, Stuart, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So could you kick us off by um, giving our listeners an introduction to your book? Yeah, so um, it's a slightly more difficult question than it really should be. That is but, true. Um, I know that is true. Uh, <laughs> it's an Agatha Christie novel set in a Groundhog Day style loop, but every time my uh, protagonist wakes up uh, in this house and this party that he's been invited to, he's in the, the body of a different guest in the party. So he keeps bumping into past hymns and future hymns. And at the end of every day, Agatha, uh, Agatha, Evelyn Hardcastle dies, and he has to solve the murder to escape this time loop, basically. Having literally just finished the novel this morning, I have to ask, how long did you work on the introduction to get it down to, like, three sentences? Because that feels like an impossible task. Oh, it was every party I went to for about two years. Because whenever you're writing a novel, people are like, oh, what's it about? And then, like, they would be there for the next four hours while I tried <laughs> to explain it to them. Um, so, yeah, every party I went to, I'd whittle it down. Eventually, it was three hours, then two hours, and finally, I've got that. It's, it's a good job you've caught me now rather than a year and a half ago. We would have been here all day. Um. So we're curious, obviously, like you said, it's kind of a Agatha, Agatha Christie-styled novel, but what was sort of your inspiration for, for wanting to write this novel? Because it is so incredibly unique and wildly elaborate, and I'm just kind of curious where the idea first sort of came from. It's a, it's a kind of an, it's an idea in two parts, because I initially always wanted to write an Agatha Christie-style mystery, because I grew up reading those. They were the first books that I ever truly loved. And um, I remember getting one when I was eight years of age, and it was the first time when I read a book, and I finished it, I was like, oh, that was really good. And my mum came into the room and said, well, you didn't look, because there's 87 more of them. That was like the, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me up until that point. I was getting my first inflatable football and there was, uh, you know, reading Agatha Christie books. So, um, yeah, before I even knew I wanted to write a novel, I wanted to write that kind of, that style of novel, that mystery, that locked room, where everyone could have done it and it was almost impossible to see who had done it. 
then when I was, I'm 38 now to put this in context, so when I turned 21, I was like, well, I'm 21 now, and my life is basically old, but I have to write this novel <laughs> uh, before I die imminently. And um, I sat down to write it, and I wrote the most terrible book that has ever been put down on page. It was <laughs> rip your hard drive out of the computer and burn it. Up. It was awful. And I realised that what I'd done is I'd just remixed a lot of Agatha Christie tropes, mm. but I'd not done anything clever with them. I lifted them, I'd just remixed them. It was a really, really terrible cover band version of Agatha Christie. <laughs> and I realised that what I was lacking was that central, great idea that she nearly always had, the really cool reveal, the really cool plot twist, or the really interesting murder. I just didn't have that. Um, so I decided at 21 that I would, you know, I would have that idea and then I would come back to this novel. And I honestly thought with all the arrogance of being 21 that it would take me a week or a month and then 12 years later <laughs> I finally had the idea I needed. So that was kind of, that was kind of genesis of it. I was just genuinely trying to write an Agatha Christie novel that I would not be embarrassed to see on the shelf next to one of hers. Oh, man. I like it. I do have to say, though, uh, Adam and I both really like Agatha Christie, so I'm going to put you on the spot and ask what your favorite Agatha Christie novel is. Oh, uh, and then there were none, probably. Oh, it's so good, um, yeah. Which I know it's one of the sort of, like, the big five, but I genuinely do love that. And also there's a book of short stories, which has got a slightly different title in the U.S. to the U.K., and I can't remember what it is, but it's got Murder in the News, and it's got... Um, they're basically only, they're about 20, 25 pages each of these stories. And um, there's one within it where Hercule Poirot, he, he comes, he hears some young people coming back from a party and they stumble into the wrong house or the, the wrong house in the building. And there's been a body in there and they scream and Hercule Poirot comes down from his house upstairs and he walks in through the front door. He looks around the apartment like, yeah, I know who did it, and then he walks out. That's my favourite Agatha Christie story ever. It's absolutely brilliant. I won't spoil it, but if anybody can go find that book of short stories with that particular story, it is awesome. <laughs> but, um, I will say, as a, as a person who listens to a lot of audiobooks, I will tell people, especially kind of through Overdrive and stuff, some of the the various narrators that they get for the audiobooks of the Hercule Poirot stories. I don't know how big of an audiobook person you are, but some of them, it's one individual. I think it's Hugh... Um, I want to say Hugh Grant, but that's not right. I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but there's one individual who's great, and then there's a few others that are, like, full cast yep. readings, and they're just so perfectly Agatha Christie. Yep. I love yeah. them so much. Um, yeah, I don't. I just, I've only just started listening to audio books. So I'm just beginning to sort of work out the big difference between a really good narrator and a really bad yeah. narrator, um, and what that can do to a novel. So yeah, I'll be. I'll be out of the Christies of my because I've read them. I sort of I read them all roughly every five years in my life. I seem to go back to them and over the Christmas period. I'll just I'll read them one after another. Mm-hmm. So next time I do that, I think I'm going to do an audio book instead and listen to them in the car on a long car journey. It's the best. By the way, you were talking about your favorite, and I was sure that you were going to tell us the mysterious affair at Styles and the ABC murders because that's those are the two that I kind of thought I saw the most of in your book, and Mm. I'm a little thrown off now that those weren't the ones you said. (laughs) 
Well, I kind of, uh, you know, I predicted you might think that, and I didn't want to come across as predictable, so I've altered my answer to start you off true crime novelist fashion. Wow. I do, but I, I genuinely do love those novels. But they've got, again, they've got really interesting hooks and ideas at the centre of them, especially the ABC murders. Um, but I think Bobby and the Library as well and um, Appointment with Death would mm. also come into them because, again, you set up this almost impossible murder right at the front of the book and then you challenge the reader to kind of work out how you're going to get there as well as who did it. So anything that has that sort of dynamic, I think, plays into this one. I'm thinking in to truly honor your book and the work you've done, I think the best thing for us to do with this podcast is to edit it and cut it up so it's entirely <laughs> out of order for people. <laughs> well, to be honest, the way I answer questions does that anyway, because I'll start at the end of the question and I'll, I'll drop back to the beginning and then I'll kind of forget where I am and go straight into the middle. Right. So you're probably, it's not good, any editing is probably just to make me sound coherent. <laughs> Um, are there any other books or authors beyond Agatha Christie that inspired your book? Oh, yeah. I mean, this, especially this one, there's um, shades of Raymond Chandler in there, I think. Um, there's definitely shades of Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. Um, there's other Golden Age mysteries mm-hmm. in there. Um, Dorothy Alsayas is in there. Wilkie Collins is in there. I mean, all of these characters, all the hosts, that my protagonist jumps into, they all have, because they're all forced to investigate the murder and they're all very different personalities, I tried to bring slightly different kind of investigative styles to them, if that makes sense. So you've got Raven Hart, who's this obese banker, but he's a very near wolf kind of character. He kind of sits there and just thinks his way through problems and sends other people off to do his investigating and ask the questions. Um, you've got a character at the end, Jim Vashton, is much more sort of like modern psychological copper who just is very dogged and asks all the right questions. You've got um, Conan Doll shades all the way through it. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of mystery novels, but then, to be honest, novels that did that have beautiful writing in them, because I read for I read for structure. I love books that mess with structure, that have beautiful writing. So House of Leeds, I love. Got Small Things, I love. Book Thief, I love by Nakazuzak, uh, The Poisonwood Bible. These are always books that are kind of in my mind that I always return to. Um, so they definitely played a part whenever I had a page where I thought, well, this is just a page of exposition. Maybe I can fill in a piece of beautiful dialogue or a nice metaphor or just something that will make me happy when I read it again in the future. Instead of thinking, there's just a world of information that the reader needed. Um. I'm curious, and this may, you can tell me and be honest if I'm just projecting my own childhood love of this particular thing onto your, the question here, but you know, there's all these cultural and literary references and, and influences on, on the book, but to me it also feels like a lot like those uh, video games that are like, role, like RPGs, as they say, role-playing games where you are controlling a kind of band of, of people and you use their specific qualities and attributes to gain certain things and you kind of bounce back and forth and to me it feels like that's a big part of this where Aiden the main character is sort of learning like you said the different things that these characters can do and and understanding how he has to take advantage of them so was there like are those things that you played as a kid or again am I entirely just putting my childhood onto your writing 
and oh, you've nailed it, but you've nailed it in a way that I didn't realise that I was doing it. <laughs> so when I hand it over to one of my very best friends um, to read it after it had been edited and stuff, he was like, yeah, mate, I liked it, uh, but you realise you've written Maniac Mansion, right? I've written Maniac Mansion. Um, <laughs> but I honestly didn't know I was doing it, but all the structure of it, a lot of the things concerned within it, as you say, like you've got you've got bosses, you've got mini-bosses, you've got lives, you've got all these uh, the mechanics of video games built into the novel. Um, and they almost seem to be my first point of reference for when I was structuring it, which just really caught me by surprise because I didn't realise I was doing that. And then the moment somebody pointed it out, I was like, of course I've done that because I grew up loving video games as much as I grew up loving uh, these books and as much as I grew up loving uh, films and Agatha Christie. Like, it's, it's just a part of my psyche now and I imagine it's part of the psyche of a lot of people who enjoyed the book because they recognise that within it. Now I really want a 1920s London version of Final Fantasy. <laughs> I very much uh. want to play that. <laughs> I'd love a sort of like Mario version of this where my main character just pops his way through the house. Just keeps bopping the footman on the head all the way through. <laughs> well they had that there was that Luigi's mansion a while back, but you're only one character, right. so it's not quite the same. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's Nintendo, their next book, their next game could very easily do that. It's just, you got you get Mario's hat from the latest game and you can just possess whoever you want in the world. You know, we'll we'll reach out to Nintendo when we get off the phone here. We'll, we'll see if we can pitch them on this. <laughs> you would make my life, my life dreams come true if we could um, so because of the structure of the book, we have like a million questions about uh, the writing process. Can you sort of walk us through what it was like writing this book? I don't need to walk you through it. If you just go and find your nearest wall and run repeatedly <laughs> at it for roughly six months, um, you will have the full experience. Um, it was... Do you know what? It was really intense. It was really, really good fun. But I spent three months before I ever wrote a word of the novel planning it out. Um, so I had every... There's eight main characters. There's eight hosts, um, not including Aiden, who inhabits them. So for all those guys, I uh, wrote... I had a massive spreadsheet. I had every two days, every two minutes of the day plotted out. So I knew what they were doing for every two minutes. And then I took that information and I laid it over a map of the housing grounds that I created so I could see kind of where they needed to be and if the action was getting too clustered in one area. And then I started using it to sort of like pull people to bits of the house that I wanted. Because the big thing I was always wary of with the Groundhog Day style loop was that I would just, I never wanted just to simply repeat the day over and over again because I thought that'd get really tedious. Um, I wanted to people to see different bits of the day and different parts of the house. So I needed to give myself a nice big palette to work with and a lot of geography so I could take people to different areas. So we've got a lake and we've got a cemetery and we've got the house and all these little bits and bobs. So I started planning it down so that I could make sure things were always, you know, happening in different parts of the house so that if there was a gunshot over there, those people definitely couldn't have heard it. Because um, what I never wanted to do was cheat. I never wanted any part of the book to be a cheat. I always wanted the mystery to be solvable by the reader if they pay attention to all the clues. So nobody's teleporting across the housing grounds <laughs> or overhearing a conversation that's four miles away from them, mm-hmm. nothing like that. Um, and that just, that took a lot, as you can imagine, it took a lot, a lot of work to get that right. And then once I had my plot in place, 
and had a murder that a time traveling detective couldn't solve very easily, um, I started pulling together the characteristics for the characters that inhabit and the characters who've been in the house and their quirks and what I need to try and make them stand out. So yeah, overall it took about, I mean, I actually thought it would take a couple of weeks, but it took about three months of solid work to get that planning in place. I, the way that this is structured where every single chapter ends with something that just feels impossible to grasp. Like we were fortunate. We uh, interviewed Lee child a long time ago and he told us that he would write his characters into a corner on purpose and then work as hard as he could to try and write himself out of it because then he knew that it was a problem that seemed impossible. And to me, that's what it feels like you did with all eight of these characters. Like you wrote them into an impossible plot but you did it across eight different angles at the story. Like I, I am blown away. That, that I know that you said you've you know written other quote unquote horrible novels before this, but the fact that this is your first, like, first off, there had to be a million, like the most sticky notes of all time. <laughs> yeah, I should have bought shares in the sticky note uh, company. It would have been cheaper than repeatedly buying packs of the damn things. Um, no, there was. I mean, and that writing myself into a corner, my writing, as much as you can call it a style for a baby novelist, is that I just make sure that every chapter and every page almost there's a new problem for my character to solve, there's a new thing that hinders him that he's got to get over and um, solve, and that's, because that is a joy, because I spent two and a half years in writing this thing, and it would be so easy to become bored. So my main task in my own life was to make sure I never got bored because I was certain that I did the reader would. So just making my character's life ever more miserable was my best way of doing that. <laughs> wow, that's one way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. It just it got to that point where I, I, like, I would feel that he had a handle on the mystery and he had a handle on the time travel mechanics and the body swapping mechanics. So I was like, well... Yeah, he's got a handle on that, so what can I throw into screw up his day even further? So we'll have a murderous rampaging footman turn up and start stalking him, that'll be fun. And then, of course, as you go through the novel, you've got to sort of like tie those things together in a really satisfying way. Um, so yeah, it was, just, it was just really, really fun to do. So once you had, you know, your spreadsheet with your plot all figured out, how did you actually approach writing it? You know, did you, each day would you focus on a particular section of time in the story would you work on a different host like what was that process like um i would just do whatever bit i fancied doing that morning so when i woke up and got out of bed i would have my coffee and i would look at my plan and be like right i quite fancy writing the ending today so that's what i'd work on or i quite fancy writing this um this bit in the middle where this big thing happens this big action scene so i'll write that the problem with that strategy of course is it's like you know, it's like having your meat and vegetables dinner. You eat the meat first and you eat all your vegetables to the end because <laughs> you don't want them. So for the final, for roughly the final four months or something, this novel I had a lot of exposition pages to write because I just kept putting them off and putting them off and putting them off. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in a weird way, that came a bit of a benefit because it writing so much exposition back to back forced me to find interesting ways of trying to do my exposition rather than mm. just have it be a character sit down with another character and be like, now for 10 pages, let me explain everything you need to know. <laughs> well, you say that, but actually, as tedious as I'm sure it was to write, one of my favorite characters in here is this character called the Plague Doctor, who, to mm. me, he's almost like... Um, 
like, like, a, like a Greek chorus, I guess. Like I was told by many of our coworkers because you have a lot of fans in our office that I needed to. Oh, thank you. Yeah, they told me they're like, you need to read this book like either over a weekend or in a in a night because of there's so much going on, and mm-hmm. I was like listening to it and, and reading it and paying as much attention as I could. And I still felt lost. And then I feel like you did this incredible job with this plague doctor who for people who haven't read it yet, when you get to this point where absolutely you can't make heads or tails of anything, this plague doctor shows up and it's almost like he resets the, the board for you. Like, all right, listen, I'm going to explain to Aiden what's going on. But in my mind, it was you <laughs> telling the reader, like, listen, idiots, I get it. You're probably lost. Here's what's happening right now. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh. It wasn't even for the reader so much as for myself. Like, he was my, hey, okay, Stu, this is where you're up to with your novel. This is what's going to, this is what happens next. So he was kind of like, he was a lovely character to write. I really, really enjoyed the play Doctor. But he was, I mean, it was for both of us. It was for the reader and it was for me. I needed this character to. And again, it comes back to the earlier point we made. He needed to be there as an anchor for the reader to kind of explain that, yes, everything you think is happening is weird. It's perfectly normal. It's perfectly natural. You're supposed to be confused. It's fine, you can just sink into the plot. And then when I did that, I was like, I'm not happy with that, that's not enough of a challenge. So I made him a bit more sinister and I made him a bit more dubious. And again, it's about just constantly throwing my protagonist and making life difficult for him. So even when I give him an exposition character who's there to help him out and make him seem completely unreliable so he doesn't know where to trust the information that he's just been given, I'm a really, really, really cruel author. I love him. <laughs> um, so one thing we wanted to ask, and I don't know how much control you have over this or if you know the reasoning, but there is a naming difference in the title of the book between the UK and the US. It's the seven and a half deaths versus the seven. Do you do you know how that came about or why? I do know how that came about because I was, I was part of the three-month conversation with that coming around. Um it became because, so the book was initially supposed to launch in the US, I think a few months after it came out in the UK, and there probably wouldn't have been any problems, but in the intervening time it got pushed back to September, so Sourcebooks and my publisher in the US could be a bit more with it, and in the intervening time a book called, came out in the US called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, um, oh, which okay. is apparently monumentally good, but it's obviously a very, very similar title. So the... <laughs> it's one of those things where I remember the email's been like, we're trying to avoid some confusion here, but we seem to have sown a lot more confusion by changing the text. A lot of people think Seven and a Half Death is the sequel to the Seven Death or the prequel, <laughs> or it's like <laughs> it's a companion novel or something. Um, no, it was, and it was just purely to avoid that, that naming clash, because it's just desperately lucky to have two titles so close. That's, I, I, yeah. That didn't even occur to me. That makes perfect sense, though. Because, yeah, I'm familiar with that other mm-hmm. book, so... I see. Okay. Interesting. Um, one more question about the process. I, you know, we talk to authors all the time, and we hear them say how much they love their relationship with their editor, and these editors help them steer the books in the right direction. But I, I have to imagine working with an editor on this book had to be, I don't want to say a nightmare, because I'm sure you probably had a wonderful editor, but like very daunting to make sure that they were helping you move the story in the way that you wanted to but also i'm sure you had very like a very strict hard line of saying the story has to go in this certain direction so like what was that relationship like back and forth oh i was actually hugely lucky because 
um, I had a few publishers interested in the novel, so I got to have a few meetings with different publishers um, about their vision for the novel. So I could kind of, you know, I went into the editing process kind of already knowing what they wanted to do with it. And in the end, we went with the editor in the US and the UK, who are both very like, we just love this story, like, we believe in this story, we're going to edit it uh, for sort of tightness and for emotion, because I'm very, I'm just, I'm, I've got a heart made of tin, basically. I don't really, <laughs> so in my initial draft, it was just a lot of people just doing things because things are cool to do. Um, and there's about four emotions in the entire 500 page book. So um, we ended up putting a bit of emotion and some feelings about things in there, which, you know, still makes me nauseous, but um, no, because it's very nice. But yeah, so um, again, it's kind of that process of marrying up the right editor for that story, who sort of gets it and sees it the way you see it, but also can give you that second pair of eyes and see the things that you missed, like that there isn't sufficient emotion in there, or maybe... You know, the back end of the book is a bit flabby when it needs to be a lot faster. Or maybe you can even slow down, you know, the, the first part of the book, the first section, give people a bit more information, maybe not fling them so deeply into the well as you've already done. I have to tell you, I saw an interview you did where you discussed um, Franz Kafka's The the Trial being kind of a, an inspiration mm. for you. And the, that answer about having almost no emotion in the book, that's very Kafka-esque of you. <laughs> I'm definitely seeing what you're talking about now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I was supposed to aspire to it so much, but, you know, <laughs> it is definitely... I, I do love just pure weirdness and sort of, like, being completely lost in books and uh, having the patience to wait for things. But that's sort of, like, Kafka-esque. So uh, people appear to want to kill me for no reason whatsoever. I'll go and have a cup of coffee and think about this. It's very much a part of me. <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. Uh, so um, I think I saw that there is a television adaptation of the book being made. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Can you talk about that at all at this stage? I really can't. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those, and it's it not because I know anything about it. I don't. Um, I know the rights have been bought. Uh, they've got a writers' room assembled, um, and they're trying to break it down, which I can't imagine. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's as much knowledge as I've got about it. That they're, they're working on it right okay. now. But again, we had a few meetings with different production companies about it, um, so I've a vague idea of what they want to do with it and sort of how they see it and it will be incredibly exciting but as with anything in television or movies it's i think it's a you might as well flip a coin right. and for the best whether it gets to the whether it gets to the screen or not but they're working on it so hopefully 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 it'll be good man i'm really curious how they're going to do aiden the main character if it's going to be one person or one one actor if they're going to do eight different actors sorry i know you're not allowed to talk about this anymore I'm, but now <laughs> my head's spinning <laughs> I honestly don't know. I'm just, I begged them to get Scott Bakula in it and just do a full quantum leap, almost revival with Al and Ziggy. And I just wanted to look into a mirror every day and say, oh boy, and then just be someone else. That's just, just rip off quantum leap completely. I was going to say David Tennant, but Scott Bakula yeah. might be better. Yeah, I think so. We can have both. We can have model. We can have every beloved sort of character out there. Doctor Who actor. Anyone who's ever done in a sci fi show ever. We can have them all. That's perfect. There you go. There you go. Yeah. 
Okay, so at the end of our episodes, we do what we call the Nerd Nine, which are just nine kind of lighthearted questions. So don't put too much thought into these. And I'm sorry in advance if you try okay. to, because we always get yelled at for not telling the author <laughs> these ahead of time. But the first one is, uh, mm-hmm. do you remember the last book you finished reading? Uh, by Terry Pratchett. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Uh, in bed, but a couple uh, do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading? Uh, I think it's the again. That would make sense. Uh, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Oh, I was a travel journalist for about 10 years, so no. <laughs> 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 Fair enough. Mars. I'd love to go to Mars. <laughs> do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Uh, Christmas for me every day of the week and twice on Sundays. <laughs> uh, are you a coffee person or a tea person? Oh, tea. I don't even understand what coffee is. <laughs> uh, cats or dogs? Oh, uh, neither. I don't like animals too much. Uh, do you have a favorite food? Uh, yes, spaghetti carbonara. And then if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Oh, Raymond Chandler. I would just drink gimlets with Raymond Chandler all night and trade quips. <laughs> Man, that's perfect. Okay, so last question for you. What do you hope that readers take away from the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle? I just thought it fun. I just want them to have a ball of it and just stay up far too late and then be really annoyed that they stayed up so <laughs> too late but feel quite good about it and have a terrible day in work because they're still thinking about the book and they just want to read it again and stay up late the next night. I just want people to really, really enjoy it. You just described my entire day. Stuart, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us today. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.